murdered by his mistress, a sensational stabbing in Chattanooga, forgery, Oklahoma land swindle, conspiracy, breach of promise, self-cremation, Geronimo's surrender, a strange disease, and more in this episode of A Year of Crime as reported in the newspapers of West Tennessee for February the 5th, 1886. Today's news is from the Memphis Appeal. Murdered by his mistress. Terrible tragedy near Thibodeau, Louisiana, Tuesday night. New Orleans, Louisiana, February the 4th. News has been received of a terrible tragedy that occurred on the Jameson Plantation near Thibodeau Tuesday night. The wedding ceremony was being performed, which united in marriage James Baptiste and Marie Dujot, when the lights were suddenly extinguished and the room left completely dark. In the midst of the darkness, screams were heard, and when lights were brought, it was found that the bridegroom had been stabbed seven times in the back with a large knife and fatally wounded, dying a few minutes afterward. An investigation showed that the murder had been committed by Keziah Collins, a former mistress of Baptiste, who, in cooperation with others, had extinguished the lights when she assaulted him. The woman escaped on a steamboat and has not yet been arrested. Chattanooga, Tennessee. Sensational stabbing affray at a ball. This is special to the appeal. Chattanooga, Tennessee, February the 4th. A very sensational tragedy occurred at a ball last night. During the progress of the dance, Will Miller, a well-known young man, attempted to enter without paying the admission fee. Thomas Giles, the doorkeeper, intercepted him and an altercation ensued. Giles was knocked down, but managed to draw his knife, and while the two men were locked in each other's arms, surrounded by the affrighted guest, Giles managed to draw his knife, and a frightful scene ensued. With lightning-like rapidity, he began using the keen blade and in a few seconds had stabbed his adversary nine times and inflicted supposed mortal wounds. Forger captured Poughkeepsie, New York, February the 4th. Detective Jack Reeves of Cleveland, Ohio, arrived here at 5 o'clock yesterday afternoon with Edward Crowell, who Reeves says is wanted in that city for forgery to the amount of $10,000. The detective says Crowell made away with the sum and got $10,000 more on forged checks from the Union Bank of Cleveland, Cleveland and then fled to Europe. The detective tracked him to Belgium, where he lost the clue. This was over a year ago. Yesterday, he found Crowell at Newburgh, where he was running a bucket shop, and took him quietly away. He left with his prisoner last night for Cleveland. Burned the lockup and cremated himself. Chrisfield, Maryland, February the 4th. Tuesday night, a German, known only by George, was arrested for some slight offense. On the way to the lockup, he declared that if he was confined all night, he would burn the house and himself. Yesterday morning, the house, a small frame structure, was found to have been destroyed by fire, and among the ashes were the remains of the man. He had evidently set fire to the place during the night. Oklahoma land swindle, a dangerous scheme worked by Texas parties, a homestead promised in the new territory for the sum of $2. Washington, February the 4th. Representative McRae of Arkansas referred to the commissioner of the General Land Office a copy of a circular purporting to be issued by the Texas-Oklahoma Homestead Colony, Denison, Texas, inviting membership in the colony at a fee of $2 each and promising to secure homesteads in Oklahoma for members as soon as a land office should be established there. 
Mr. McRae requested the commissioner's opinion as to when the lands would be open to settlement and as to the benefits to accrue to members of an alleged colony. Commissioner Sparks' reply. In reply, Commissioner Sparks gives a history of the Oklahoma lands and states that the question of opening these lands to settlement involves a question of grave import, that of a dismemberment of the Indian Territory, and can be determined only by congressional action. He further says, quote, But I have a very positive opinion that no benefit can be derived from a membership in the alleged colony. If the lands were open for settlement, the agents of the colony could not make settlement, location, and entries for the members because settlements and settlement entries can be made only by settlers in person. But as the lands are not open to settlement, the formation of an actual organization for the purpose of going into the Oklahoma country could be encouraging an unlawful combination. As a prospective scheme, the only tangible result that can be perceived is the attainment by its alleged promoters of $2 from each person who may be deceived and imposed upon by said circular. The whole scheme is undoubtedly an imposition and a dangerous one because the small sum required for membership may induce a large number of unsuspicious persons to become its dupes." Unquote. A serious affray in the penitentiary at Pittsburgh, three men seriously injured. Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, February the 4th. A serious affray occurred in the Riverside Penitentiary this morning in which deputies McCain, Greaves, and Edwards were injured, the former dangerously. It appears that a prisoner named James Clark, who was serving a sentence of seven years for burglary, had been ordered to the dungeon for infraction of the rules. McCain and Greaves repaired to the cell to, to escort him to the dungeon. He promised to go quietly, but in an unguarded moment, he turned upon them with a large knife which he had secreted in his coat. He first made a desperate lunge at McCain and plunged the knife into his neck, then stabbed him in the right temple. Turning from McCain, he thrust the bloody weapon to Greaves' right shoulder blade twice. Deputy Edwards, hearing the noise, came to the aid of McCain and Greaves, but before he could render them assistance, Clark felled him to the ground with a terrible blow, and jumping on him, beat and kicked him in a frightful manner. By this time, the guard had been alarmed, and Clark was overpowered and placed in the dungeon. The injured men were removed to the hospital. An examination of their injuries showed McCain to have perhaps mortal wounds. Greaves and Edwards are seriously hurt, but will recover. After a short break, we'll see how the newspapers of 1886 reported on the surrender of Geronimo, the Apache chief. I've said this before, but it's worth repeating. As Douglas Blackman pointed out in his book, Slavery by Another Name, I'd like to make a note on language. Some of these articles use offensive racial labels. I decided to read the accounts as they were written to present the language of that time. I believe we must face our past, even the parts we'd prefer to sweep under the rug of history. The Apache War Ended. Reports of Geronimo's surrender confirmed. A general feeling that the Red Devil should hang for his crimes. Chicago, Illinois, February the 4th. A special dispatch from El Paso, published here this morning, says, Additional news from the seat of war confirms the report sent yesterday of Geronimo's unconditional surrender. The particulars in full will probably be out in a day or two. The war has been in progress since May 1885, and troops have been in the field since the 22nd of that month. It has been one of the hardest wars on the regular service that has ever occurred in the West. None but those acquainted with the country can realize the hardships. 
The Indians were fully equipped, and when their horses were exhausted, they would steal others. They killed cattle everywhere, and when the feet of their horses became tender on long marches, they made rawhide shoes almost as durable as iron and were then enabled to distance the pursuing cavalry on a long chase. Being familiar with the country, the Indians led the soldiers on a very weary chase. They divided into small bands and raided in all directions. Coming to a ranch, they would kill the settlers, mutilate the victims beyond recognition, steal the provisions, and drive off all the horses. Chief Geronimo was first to go on the warpath with his band of bucks. They were Chiawa Apaches, the remnant of Cochise's celebrated fighters from San Carlos Agency in Arizona. The tribe was always warlike. It never lived in the reservation proper, but under the control of the agency. They were scattered throughout the mountains within the limits of the reservation so that it was impossible to tell the exact number. From all accounts, there must have been nearly 160 bucks, besides the women and children. All of them fought like demons. Troops have hotly pursued the trail of the renegades, but by dividing into squads, the Indians kept out of the way and disconcerted the scouts and officers alike. The plan of the hostiles was to terrify and steal, but not fight openly, and the results show the wisdom of their plans. In this manner, they have kept 2,600 troops besides many companies of New Mexico militia in the field scouting about in a purposeless way. In the nine months of the war, there have been nearly 200 settlers and soldiers killed. An example of the outrage, the following is related. Early in the summer, Geronimo's band surprised a settler's ranch on the Gila, killed him and his wife after having tortured him horribly. Then the Indians took the, the little six-year-old girl of the murdered couple, cut her arm so as to draw the cord at the waist, inserted her feet through, and hang her thus on the limb of a tree. She was alive six hours later, but died after having related the horrors of her parents' massacre. Many of the mutilations were too horrible to bear description. The feeling in New Mexico and Arizona is very strong in favor of hanging Geronimo and his immediate followers. In fact, this feeling is rapidly growing into one general demand on the part of the settlers. Reports received here from a number of communities show that the people are indignant and will oppose the usual policy of the army in allowing renegades return unpunished to the reservation. Should any disposition be displayed to grant Geronimo his liberty, petitions will be forwarded to Washington insisting that he be tried for murder under the local law. The Killing of Captain Crawford, Tucson, Arizona, February the 4th. With reference to the recent killing of Captain Crawford by Mexican troops, the Star says, It can be shown to the satisfaction of any congressional committee that trade has been constantly kept up by the Mexicans with the hostile Apaches, while every obstacle has been put in the path of American commands sent to Mexico to pursue other renegades. Whenever possible, officers were arrested and thrown into prison. Among these were Lieutenant McDonald of the 4th Cavalry and Lieutenant Elliott of the 10th Cavalry. They were kept under guard until the approach of large forces of American troops frightened the Mexicans into liberating them. From the most reliable information, there is not the least doubt that the murder of Captain Crawford was premeditated. Believed to be accidental. Washington, February the 4th. It is believed at the War Department that the killing of Captain Crawford by Mexican troops was the result of an accident and that the Mexicans fired upon his command under the impression that they were hostiles. The statement that the United States troops 
had stock in their possession at the time of the attack, which had been stolen in the vicinity, is explained by Lieutenant Mann's report that they had just captured it from the hostile Indians. It is also explained that Captain Crawford was unable to show the identity of his command at the offset of the firing by the Mexicans because of his ignorance of the nature of the attack and the general demoralization which it caused. A Strange Disease A Case Which Is Puzzling Physicians at Wheeling, West Virginia Wheeling, West Virginia, February the 4th. Two weeks ago, the 11-year-old daughter of M.J. Huff was taken sick at her father's house, two miles from Sand Hill, Marshall County. Two physicians were summoned, summoned, but they admitted that they did not understand the case. She is still ill. The child, when attacked by one of the intermittent spells of the disease, will sink into a death-like trance and lie so for four or six hours. During this trance, she is to all appearances dead. After this passes off, a series of strong convulsions seize the child, and her arms are thrown madly about with a strength which strong men have been unable to overcome. When these spasms become general, a smile overspreads the girl's face, and she raises her hand and extends it as if to shake hands with friends. After this, she laughs softly to herself as if though in conversation with invisible friends. Occasionally, the child becomes calm, her mind seemingly bright and clear, but only to sink again into a comatose state. Through, though over two weeks have elapsed since the child's first convulsions, she has in that time eaten scarcely anything. Robbing their employers. Extensive conspiracy discovered in a Chicago printing establishment, Chicago, Illinois, February the 4th. Detectives had succeeded in unearthing a conspiracy among a number of employees in Rand and McNally's printing house, which, it is asserted, has already cost the firm over $10,000. Yesterday, George Weber, a paper dealer, and Jay Watson and William Williams, employees in the paper department of the printing firm, were arrested on charges of larceny and conspiracy and were held in bonds of $2,000 each. Several other employees of the house were arrested last night and more will be arrested today and they will be prosecuted on the same charges. For a year, the firm has been losing paper of all kinds, but the stealing was done so carefully that they were not able to trace it to any one of the employees. Recently, however, the thefts have been increasing to such an extent that detectives were called in and they succeeded in tracing stolen paper to Weber's store. By careful watching, the detectives soon discovered that there were seven or eight other employees besides Watson and Williams who had almost daily transactions with Weber. It was their plan to hide the paper in the firm's delivery wagons, and when the opportunity offered itself, they would deliver it to Weber. The latter, it is said, has confessed the whole story and has implicated everybody who has been engaged in the conspiracy. Sensational Breach of Promise Suit, Los Angeles, California, February the 4th. Testimony in the breach of promise case of Louise Perkins versus E.J. Baldwin for $500,000 damages began yesterday. Plaintiff, in giving her testimony, described the growth of the acquaintanceship between her and Baldwin up to the time she was induced under alleged promise of marriage made to her in the Baldwin Hotel in San Francisco in April 1883 to travel with him as his wife to Sacramento and San Jose. She completed her testimony by stating that after Baldwin was married to Miss Bennett, he called on her and said he would get rid of his wife and marry plaintiff. A number of letters and diamond engagement rings were also introduced as evidence. A Negro named Frank Nelson for stealing a turkey from the steamer Chickasaw was sent to the workhouse yesterday for three months. 
The two confidence men, Woods and Briscoe, were convicted yesterday of robbing passengers on the Little Rock transfer and sentenced to three years each. I'll return tomorrow, February 6th, with another episode of A Year of Crime as reported in the newspapers of West Tennessee, Season 1, 1886. Please be sure to like and to subscribe. I appreciate you listening in to my year-long exploration of crime news reporting during the year that Eliza Woods was lynched in Madison County, Tennessee.